on today's episode of The Leadership Drives. Nobody wants to talk about senior care until they're either in crisis or uh, one of their family members is starting to decline. And so what we are trying to do is let people know about the options available for their loved ones, trying to get them to start talking about that early uh, to their loved one when they're healthy, when they can still make decisions for themselves. I think COVID was a game changer for everyone who survived it, first of all, and didn't. But um, but when you work in senior care, there is it was almost like we were in the middle of a war. To work in senior care, it's a little bit of a calling. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to The Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to travel with me as I endeavor to study leadership in its various forms. I want to know how and why people lead, whether on or off the clock, paid or unpaid, at home or beyond. As you probably know, So much is written about the universal aspects of leadership, but context is where the rubber meets the road. In turn, I look for leaders whose contexts are anything but textbook. My goal is to understand what leadership looks like in their unique corners of the world. Now, I know I just said that I believe that context matters greatly. This is true. What is also true is that I believe the ways in which a person's labor, whether paid or unpaid, on the clock or off the clock, at home or beyond, I believe the ways in which a person's labor supports their highest and best vision of themselves is equally, if not more so, important. The lengths to which leaders will go to connect their inner drive to what they do every single day is captivating. This nexus is so remarkable to me that I prefer to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a simple drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to understand the trade-offs, the choices that people make to gain alignment between their personal and professional lives and how that impacts their ability to create visions that other people can embrace. Thank you so much, Jari, for letting me come visit you in your place of business. We are thrilled to have you here. Welcome to Jewish Home Life. Indeed, indeed. You know, it was amazing. Um, I was actually kind of glad to know that it was Jewish Home Life for a couple of reasons. With my podcast, I make a point to include people from various religious communities because I think sometimes we don't think of people in those arenas as having leadership skills, but that's a very important part of our culture. And in those settings, 
frankly, I think you'd probably need more leadership skills than you need in some other spaces. So I was really excited to actually get an invitation to actually come here. So with that, um, tell me a little bit about what a day in this organization looks like for you. What's your normal day like? Sure. Um, I, I like to say my normal day is like a Seinfeld episode <laughs> because there is something different happening. And it when you tell someone the story, it seems like it's about nothing, but there's always funny parts to it. Uh, to give you just a quick thumbnail background, Jewish Home Life is a nonprofit. We uh, support every stage of aging from independent living and private home care all the way through assisted living, memory care, and hospice. Um, we have residential communities and at home care services. So I work in the middle of um, what Seinfeld called Del Boca Vista. So I work in the middle of two assisted living, two independent living communities and a nursing home. So we have residents around all the time. Oh, wow. um, when we go eat lunch, there are residents having lunch with us. Um, we'll be passing through activities. Uh, sometimes when there's a party going on, all of us in the admin team, we all go up and celebrate with the residents. We do 4th of July. We do all kinds of other um, celebrations. And so sometimes that involves music, like we have music and cocktails every Monday. So everybody goes up and we enjoy it, you know, having some music and dance with the residents. And it's really, really fun to be here. But we do a lot of really, you know, heavy work as well. You are listening to my conversation with Shari Bayer, the Chief of Marketing and Communication of Jewish Home Life located in Atlanta, Georgia. If you've ever contemplated just how much information to share with someone or your team and why, Shari's interview is encouraging. She shared how her organization used transparency to improve employee morale and how her organization had to be intentional and careful about how they shared information because they worried that it could cause panic amongst the employees. It was awesome to hear that they were thoughtful about how the information would land with employees rather than using the potential for fear as a reason to avoid sharing information at all. Be sure to listen for this part of the interview. Now, back to our conversation with Shari. What's the youngest age somebody would come here to live? Sure. So um, we uh, run two um, HUD subsidized communities and there's an age requirement. You have to be at least 62 years old unless you have uh, a handicap that requires you to live in a handicap accessible unit. So, but in our nursing home, you can actually be younger than that. So we've had residents with Huntington's disease or ALS that have been much younger, but need full care. Um, and then in our assisted living communities, typically the age is like, you know, mid age. 80s to we just celebrated 100th birthday of one of our residents. Um, one of our hospice patients is 108. Um, so yes, people are living a lot longer now. And so we get to enjoy that as much as possible. But yeah, assisted living, it's usually mid 80s to, you know, upper 90s. I would have to have a conversation with God about this 108. Like, what are we doing? I mean, <laughs> that's insensitive. I shouldn't say that. But so when you have people who are in this facility. What I'm thinking about is I have an aunt. She lives in a Brightview community. Mm -hmm. So one side is assisted living, the other side is independent living. And during the pandemic, auntie did not do well. How did 
things go around here with the patients and staff? Wow, that was a time. So um, it really bonded the staff. um, And because we acted as the family for the residents, we were not, we had no choice. We had to lock our doors. The, you know, government was telling us we could have no visitors. That was really, really difficult for uh, the staff and the families. We had um, staff who really worked around the clock. Um, You know, to work in senior care, it's a little bit of a calling. You know, you have to want to work with old people. And um, and all of the special uh, requirements, you know, to work with people that have dementia, you know, things change every day. Um, You know, they don't understand why their family member can't come and they don't understand that they have to wear a mask the whole time. And so what we had to do was figure out ways, creative ways to um, give support to those residents, act as their family members, give them all the hugs, but at the same time, trying to be as socially distant as possible and, um, and really try and get them to adhere to, you know, no, you're not supposed to wander out of your room. You're supposed to stay in your room. How do you tell someone with dementia they have to stay in their room? So we did a lot of things like, you know, um, bingo from the doorways and exercise in the doorways because of the way our nursing home is structured, everything is around the dining room. So we have a dining room and then there's 12 rooms surrounding it. So we were able to kind of stay in the center and still engage with the residents. So it was really hard. And then our administration team, we would go out, we, uh, our chief development officer, she was also known as the candy lady. So every Friday she would bring candy to all of our caregivers and housekeepers and dietary staff. And so everybody knew her as the candy lady. So we did as much as possible to keep morale up. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're having outbreaks of COVID you know, we were not immune to that either. And, um, so, you know, we had a couple of outbreaks that were devastating, you know, we lost a lot of residents and, um, um, so the day that we got the vaccines was one of the happiest, it's one of the happiest days of my life that I can recall. I mean, we had caregivers, our CEO, I mean, people were crying when we were able to get the vaccine because it was just, everybody could breathe, wow. you know, knowing that there was going to be an, kind of an end to the madness. So, um, but it was, it was, um, it was a tough time for everybody, but we're excited. We're on the other side of it now and families can come in and come and go. And, mm-hmm. um, and the team that we built during the pandemic, Pandemic, um, has stuck around and we um, we're thrilled about that. So our, you know, our staff turnover is down. We just, you know, we really have a solid core of caring, enthusiastic team members now. How would you say managing your team is different now versus during the pandemic versus pre-pandemic? So my team grew a lot in those times. I was a department of one for many years, and now I have four people uh, in my department. Um, But, you know, during the pandemic, it was really hard because at any given moment, you, you or your family members had COVID. And you couldn't come to work for 10 days. Um, Our CEO uh, designated everyone essential staff almost immediately. So nobody was remote. Um, You had to come to work. And it was come to work and do whatever needed to be done. So some days we were working in dietary. Some day we were in activities. Uh, Just whatever needed to be done, we all pitched in and did it. And so in the middle of that, we were also um, managing um, media. Uh, We had, you know, reporters calling us, asking us, you know, how we were managing. 
messaging or do we have any outbreaks? And so uh, for my department in marketing and communications, we um, had communications every week with our families. Um, we were you know, trying to get them as much information as possible. We were posting on social media every picture possible, trying to get people to be able to see their residents. We were working, our activity directors were doing video calls every day. So it's very different now because now we welcomed back all of our families, all of our volunteers were able to come back. So um, it, it's really, it's different now in that now we're allowed to have more work-life balance, mm-hmm. uh, which is something as a manager that's incredibly important to me. Gotcha. When you say marketing for a facility like this, if I'm honest, I don't know what marketing means in that sense, because I'm thinking, okay, the social media makes sense. But tell me what marketing means in this context. Like, what are you actually doing? Well, I'll give you a great example. Nobody wants to Google hospice unless a doctor is saying to them, your family member needs hospice. Mm -hmm. So hospice is not on anyone's radar until they actually need it. And then it's the same with senior care. Nobody wants to talk about senior care until they're either in crisis Mm -hmm. or uh, one of their family members is starting to decline. And so what we are trying to do is let people know about the options available for their loved ones, trying to get them to start talking about that early uh, to their loved one when they're healthy, when they can still make decisions for themselves. So if you see that your loved one is getting in their 70s um, and hasn't really spoken to you about, hey, what what do things look like if you weren't able to make decisions for yourself? What kind of community would you want to be in? Do you want to live at home? What if we can't take care of you at home? Um, What we're trying to do is expose people to the options available and allow them to uh, give them the language to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And then if they are in crisis, if you have a family member that's had a fall, what we do is we show you how we can care for your loved one and still include you as part of that caregiving team. So, um, you know, we do a lot of education. We market through education, just telling people what's the difference between assisted living and independent living. What, when do you know if it's time to move to memory? care? You know, what does it mean when someone says, hey, palliative care would be an option? Most people don't even know what palliative care is. So it's our job to educate people. So it's not really hard sales. It's more, let's educate you. And then when the time comes, you'll know, you'll understand what you need. And then you'll come back to us is the hope. Curiosity question. What's the difference between hospice and palliative? So uh, I'm so glad you asked. I feel like I set you up for that question. Um, So hospice is um, a philosophy of care, not necessarily a place. So, uh, you know, the stereotype of you go into a hospice facility really isn't the case anymore unless you really need that continuous care because Medicare doesn't cover, um, you know, 24-7 care in a facility unless your um, specific care needs warrant that. So hospice comes into your home now, wherever your home is, whether that's a nursing home, assisted living community, or your own home. and, And it helps you with with comfort measures and um, any end of life care needs that you have. So if you um, are, for example, at end stage cancer or um, or have a life limiting diagnosis, um, there's a lot of criteria. It's very government regulated, but um, if you meet those criteria and you are no longer using um, measures that will extend your life, for example, if you're continuing to do chemotherapy or something like that, then um, that hospice is the right thing for for you. Um, typically when you have about six months or less to live, um, palliative care is related. 
in that it is for chronic or life um, life limiting illnesses, but you can still do measures to extend your life. So you can still do chemotherapy, um, and palliative care will help manage your symptoms. Okay. They will help with um, managing pain. They will, um, for example, if you need a hospital bed, they can help get you a hospital bed. You know things like that. So it's one is for you're not quite at end of life yet, but you've got you know symptoms and conditions that you would need some extra care, also covered by insurance. Uh, Medicare covers palliative care and hospice, Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't cost any more to the patient. Um, And then once you decide that, you know, okay, it's time, I'm not going to fight it anymore, then typically hospice is the way to go. It's interesting, though, with hospice, hospice always isn't um, a a, a end-of-life at the very, very end. You can actually graduate off of hospice. So a lot of times what happens is once your symptoms are managed, you stabilize and then you stay on hospice for a while and things are going well as long as you're getting the care, you know, the correct care that you need. So um, we've had, uh, you know, patients that um, have been on hospice, they stabilize and then they roll into palliative care. So... I actually had an uncle, Uncle John, that was his case. He had, uh, I don't know what kind of heart failure, but he was on hospice or maybe he shifted to palliative care and I just didn't know, but that was almost two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. like, Uncle John is not dying young, I don't care what y'all say. (laughs) And our hospice is all about living. We want to make sure they have the best possible life Mm -hmm. for as long as they are still with us. And so, you know, our hospice team helps fulfill, you know, long time goals and fantasies and, you know, whatever it takes to give this person the best life possible. That's what we try and do at Weinstein Hospice. A few minutes ago, you said it takes a special person uh, to work with people in senior care. Um, If you had to say there was a profile of someone who would work very well with the residents here, what characteristics does that person have? Definitely someone who is compassionate, um, patient, uh, but compassion is really a high level of empathy. I mean, you know, we take care of people as if they're our own family members. So, you know, a lot of these folks, you know, the family member can't visit very often. Um, You know, they probably work. Um, And so, you know, we act as those family members and we love on everybody. So you really have to have a love for seniors, but you also have to be willing to do the underbelly of that, which is, you know, changing briefs. And sometimes it includes feeding somebody who is, you know, could be the age of your grandmother, you know, and helping them eat because you're actually helping them eat, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and having the compassion, having a sense of humor, because, you know, there are, you know, aging is tough. Yeah. And it happens. And um, and to be able to do that every day and go home and know that you've done, you know, it, what we consider sacred work. I mean, you're really helping people survive and helping people thrive. And, you know, when we um, we have Sweethearts Ball every year on Valentine's Day and, you know, our caregivers get in there and they're dancing with the residents and they're dressing up. And, you know, we have, um, you know, caregivers who get into a suit and tie and, you know, act as their date and dress up and dance with them. And you have to love that, you know, so you really have to have a love of older adults. You have to um, have, you know, just a dedication to your work, because, for example, when there's a snowstorm, we have people who sleep here um, because the residents have to eat and you can't just say, well, I'm not coming into work today, because if you don't come into work today, somebody else is going to have to help your resident and help them walk, help them get out of bed, help them go to the bathroom. And, um, and so you have to know that the work that you're doing really matters to something other than just yourself. Mm. So 
What makes you stay? Because I believe you're here 15, 14, 14 years. years. 14 years. Stay? Um, I just, I love it. I, I love working with older adults. I don't know if it's because, you know, my grandparents are all dead by the time I was 13. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have, you know, a real sense of like hanging out with my grandma. Um, and so um, I've always been, you know, fascinated by the stories that, you know, older adults tell. And they all have had these amazing lives before they came to live with us. Mm-hmm. And just getting to hear um, some of the greatest stories and um, and just knowing that you're doing this. In Judaism, we call it a mitzvah, a good deed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like, you know, the things that we do here really are helping people. And I've always been attracted to roles that help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been working in profit my whole career. This has been the most rewarding for me, though. I feel like when I can help a family find the right option for their loved one, that is everything. I just, I, I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of that, even if it's not with us, but it's somewhere else. You know, I have friends from college that call all the time, people I haven't heard from, and they're like, oh, you know, I, I heard you work in senior care. Can you help me? Because my mom's in the hospital and I don't know what to do. And if we can give them some peace of mind, if I can help them with some of that, that's very personally rewarding to me. And this team is amazing. Our leadership team is just fantastic. Our CEO, Jeff Gopin, is, um, you know, spent his career in senior care. He's, you know, a Gen Xer just like me. And we just, you know, there there has to be a sense of humor with all that we do here. And um, and we just, we have a lot of laughs. And, you know, the residents laugh with us. And um, it's just, we have a good time here. This, this organization, we have a great time taking care of uh, the most vulnerable people in our community and in the whole community, not just the Jewish community, but we take care of everybody. Do you think people assume that you're only open to Jewish residents? Um, I think there is an assumption there, particularly in the South. Um, and, you know, we uh, do our best. And that's actually part of my job is to let people know that we're open to everybody. Um, we, uh, you know, very similar to the YMCA, which stands for Young Men's Christian Association mm-hmm. or whatever it is that they've changed it to now. You know, nobody thinks, oh, I have to be Christian if I'm going to go in there, you know, and it's the same here. There's just an assumption, I guess, that um, if it says Jewish, it's only for Jewish people, but that's 100% not true. In fact, our rehab, um, we get direct admissions from the hospitals. And I would say probably 70 to 80% of our rehab is actually not Jewish. Um, you know, overall across our system, it's probably about uh, 50%. Um, so we have an assisted living community in Dunwoody that uh, probably skews a little more Jewish. But our HUD communities, we have two independent living um, HUD communities, and we're not even allowed to ask. And so, and we don't ask um, unless it's, you know, involving, you know, if they want a, cler- a clergy person to come. We have a director of Jewish life, but it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's more director of spirit spiritual life. So in our assisted living communities, if we have residents who want to connect with church clergy, he goes out and he finds whatever denomination they need and he brings them over. And so uh, we do the same here. And we have a chaplain who um, is non-denominational and she is wonderful, sings with the residents, prays with the residents um, and the families. And so, um, yeah, we are open to everybody and, uh, and we really just make it comfortable. So no matter what denomination or what religion or no religion at all, you have a place here. When I think of the things I hear about senior care, uh, the first thing that comes into my mind, and I hope I'm wrong, is crushing costs. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a facility like this, when you 
think about the crushing cost and when you think about the services that they need, what are some of the things that you think families, maybe our society at large can do? Because I, what do you do with that? I think my aunt is somewhere around six grand a month. Yeah. It is it's pricey. Expensive. So what do people do around the cost issues or is the HUD community helping to fix I some mean, of that? How do you deal with some of that? You know, two words, plan now. Plan now. I, I mean, that's, okay. you know, kind of part of our education pitch okay. is senior care is expensive and every state does it differently. So for example, um, in some states, not Georgia, but in some states, um, Medicaid covers assisted living, but in Georgia, it's all private pay. So if you don't have long-term care insurance and you're not, you know, a veteran that gets some VA aid and attendance benefit, you're paying out of your pocket. And a lot of people don't realize that. And assisted living is expensive, and particularly post-COVID, because um, the healthcare worker shortage has made a huge demand on, um, on you know, a livable wage. We pay livable wage here, but, it, you know, it's it's, it's expensive. And, mm-hmm. um, and we, um, you know, all communities are struggling with that. You know, there's, you know, with nurses, for example, mm-hmm. there's such a shortage of nurses. So if you want to recruit and retain high quality nurses, you have to pay a premium for that. So um, it's expensive. And then um, just the cost of supplies, when the supply chain broke down oh, yeah. during COVID, and then the additional required supplies, uh, you know, all that PPE that we had to get. Um, so, you know, it's it's incredibly, senior care is incredibly expensive to run and it's incredibly expensive to take advantage of. So, um, you know, people in nursing homes, you know, apply for Medicaid because Medicaid covers nursing home, but there is a, um, a shortage of nursing home beds. You know, we have a wait list here at our nursing home. Most nursing homes do. And so, especially for Medicaid beds. So we, um, as part of our nonprofit philosophy, we um, reserve about a third of our nursing home beds for Medicaid um, residents. And um, and then we have two HUD independent living. So that the uh, rent is subsidized by HUD. But, um, but it's expensive. Wow. And there's just, you know, other than, you know, saving now because people are living longer. Technology has gotten so much better with medicine and, you know, different kinds of drugs. You know, there's just a new drug now that is supposed to delay uh, Alzheimer's. I heard about that. I mean, amazing. Amazing, right? But that means people, which is wonderful, but mm-hmm. people are going to be living longer. And um, and so, you know, instead of, you know, people living, you know, until they're, you know, 75, we're able to keep people alive until they're in their 90s, living a wonderful, high quality of life. You like, have a 108-year-old here. So. I know. <laughs> I mean, our resident at our assisted living community that just had her 100th birthday, she's still walking around. I mean, she's got a walker, but like mm-hmm. she's still taking advantage. She leads our short story club. She, I mean, sharp as a tack. Mm-hmm. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's fun to talk with her. And But it's expensive. And so, you know, some people are relying on uh, private caregivers to come in and help. Oh, so you allow people from the outside to come in and help? Um, so uh, a private caregiver would be somebody like we run our own uh, home care agency, so mm-hmm. we can supply private caregivers. But if you live in your own home and your grandmother's living with you, for example, you can hire someone to come in for you know however number of hours per day and um, and pay that caregiver to help take care of your grandmother. Who knew? And so people are doing that as a uh, kind of a stopgap, but it adds up. So um, if you have a private caregiver, they're making anywhere from fifteen dollars an hour hour to $28 an hour, depending on what the needs are. And if you need someone for eight hours a day, I mean, it could be $10,000 a month before you even know it. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very expensive. So, you know, plan, planning ahead, saving for retirement, people are outliving their retirement. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, just planning ahead as much as possible is 
you know, and then trying to access public, you know, if you're a veteran, you can get some aid and attendance benefit. Um, you know, some people have long-term care insurance, but that's actually harder to get now. So how does this work with respect to if your costs, fixed costs are expensive? I don't know what the average wage is of mm-hmm. your actual employees, but I'm assuming you're trying to balance the two mm-hmm. every organization is. Sure. So how do you motivate your staff to stay engaged, to stay connected? Yes, they're special people. They're connected to seniors. They like to do it. I think I read this book. Um, if I weren't talking to you, I could call the name of it. Um, and one of the things it talked about is we want to rah-rah our employees. We want them to be great. But if we don't pay them enough, all of that rah-rah is not worth the rah-rah is written on. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance the fact that we need to contain cost, but we need great employees and we have a shortage of workers? And that means costs are going up. And I think I heard since I've been in Atlanta for the last week that the average one bedroom apartment is about two grand a month. I believe it. So I believe it. How is that work? How do you how are you managing that? I mean, you know, we're struggling just like everyone else. I think we found some of the formula um, because you're right. I mean, you know, during during the pandemic, we were competing for workers that could go to um, Walmart and Amazon and, you know, make twenty dollars an hour. And we were topping out at 15. So, um, you know, you have to really want to work with seniors if you're going to do that. Um, And so, you know, what we've done is try and invest in our teams. So we have um, our uh, fundraising machine is incredible. We uh, do a lot of work, our development team does, in investing in programs that will help our staff. So we have some endowments that um, one called Climb the Ladder, which will allow our, um, for example, a CNA to go back to school and get their LPN if they want to get a nursing degree. Or we actually train them to be uh, certified medicationists. So a CNA is certified nurse aide. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we do the training here to give them a certification to be a certified medication aid, which is a bump in pay, but it's also a bump in responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, offer all of our staff opportunities to go back to school. We pay for some of that. So we try and invest in our employees, but we also do a lot of the rah-rah. Like this was the first year we did a holiday party. We used to, we have an endowment that helps pay for staff appreciation. And we couldn't do a holiday party for three years, but it was it's the one time a year where every team member gets together from housekeeping and maintenance all the way up to the CEO from all of our campuses gets together. Um, you know, this year we doubled the amount of attendees there just because people were just happy to be together and, you know, just for the fellowship. So um, that's carried over a little bit. You know, we do town halls every quarter to try and keep everybody informed about what we're doing. So when budget time comes around, they understand, okay, here's the pot of money that we have. Here's how much, you know, we bring in from, um, you know, families who are paying for their loved one. And here's the gap. Okay. So here's Here's the fundraising that helps cover that gap. And here's why we're only going to give you a 3% cost of living increase this year. And we try and make them understand kind of what what the universe looks like for us. So they have some buy-in as to, okay, I get that now. You know, I get why, for example, you know, um, when our assisted living community is only at 90% occupancy instead of 100% occupancy, how that impacts Um, you know, the work that we do. And so why it's important for them to, you know, make sure that the floors are clean and the apartments are, you know, spotless and that we treat our residents wonderfully because when tours come in, we want 
prospective families to see that. So they they take ownership of kind of the pride of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we think that that has made a difference in, um, in why they stay because they understand what we're trying to do, the bigger picture of what we're trying to do. Has your organization always been that transparent with staff around? No. No. This so what just, happened that made you decide to do um, that? So we, um, we've we made some changes uh, with our change in leadership. We have a new CEO who was our chief operating officer for six years as part of succession planning. So um, when he became CEO about a year ago, he uh, wanted to... Um, make some changes about um, just the idea of transparency, making our staff understand better kind of the numbers behind uh, what they're seeing. And, um, and you know, really, you know, the leadership team that we have in place really believes, you know, we, we, we kind of came from, you know, like I came from being a part-time marketing person. Our, you know, chief financial officer started as a bill collector and, you know, over the last 20-something years has moved up. We've all started kind of in these places where we've moved up in the company, um, you know, and our, you know, the executive director of our nursing home started as the director of admissions. And she, before that, she was a social worker and has, you know, moved up. So um, the idea of promoting from within with Jewish home life has really kind of taken hold. And so we understand where our, you know, where our staff is. And so to us, um, you know, the increase in transparency has been um, very positive, but also very, very important. And um, we think it's made a big difference. When you first decided to do it, were you afraid of being that transparent? Um, you know, yes. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, it, it, we have, um, in the nursing home in particular, there's a gap between what we um, what we charge families, like, for example, the Medicare rate, um, which in Georgia is lower than in some other states. Please don't ask me what it is because I can't <laughs> tell you off the top of my head. But um, and there's a gap between what that rate is and how much it costs, like our actual cost of taking care of a resident. So we have about a million and a half gap um, that we cover every year through fundraising. Um so when you show that to the staff, it looks like we're in the red all the time. And so we have to educate them to say, yes, but this is what fundraising is about. So when you treat a resident wonderfully, you know, at the end of the year, we solicit all of our residents and families saying, you know, hey, you know, if you were satisfied with the service, would you consider making a donation to our annual fund? And they do. And they donate big because they're so appreciative of care. If we didn't give good care, that wouldn't happen. And so, um, you know, giving the staff um, a sense of that without scaring them, mm -hmm. um, you know, is uh, that's always a risk. Gotcha. Um, but we believe it's important. I think so, too. I think that was a great risk to take. Now, I'd like to ask you, what has been the greatest personal career risk you've taken since you've been here? Since I've been here. So, oh, that was, that's a good question. Um, you know what? I, um, the thing that I'm, let me, I'll flip it to say the thing I'm most proud of because okay. it was risky at the same time. It was gotcha. and scary and fun at the same time. Um, eight years ago, we, um, I've done things since then. So this seems like a long time ago now, but, um, uh, I'm going to say two things. All right. So eight years ago, we opened an assisted living community from the ground up in Dunwoody, Berman Commons. Um, and I was living in Dunwoody at the time. And, um, so I understood from a resident's point of view, why the city of Dunwoody wasn't so excited about having a senior community in the middle of a residential area. Everybody's worried about the ambulances and all of the other stereotypical things that you think about with a senior community, you know, seniors running around in the middle of the night, you know, 
Um, but also as somebody who knew that this community was going to be such a change maker for, for example, the city of Dunwoody, that there was a place where, you know, I could put my parents and they would be living five minutes away from me and getting the care that they needed and really good care. Um, so I got to watch that go from the ground up and, um, I was, you know, um, partially responsible for the selling of, you know, or the, the leasing of all of those apartments. So when we opened, we opened with a waiting list and it was really amazing and getting to see that community come full circle because when we opened, we were full. And then, you know, as any new organization does, you have some operational issues. And then of course COVID hits and then, you know, and now we're on the other side of it and we've got this incredible leadership team and um, a chef that is just spectacular and activities that they're doing are just fun and engaging. And so now I'm seeing this community come, you know, really just rise to the occasion. And that's been really fun. But, um, but the, uh, the second thing I would say is just managing COVID. You know, my own dad was in our nursing home here and he died uh, part of one of our outbreaks. And that was devastating. And, um, but I got to see my dad every day and, um, you know, and, and there are families that weren't so lucky, you know, they didn't get to see their family member other than on a video call. And uh, I think um, COVID was a game changer for everyone who survived it, first of all, and didn't. But um, but when you work in senior care, there is it was almost like we were in the middle of a war and we came out the other side. And, you know, there's still some PTSD uh, there. But um, but for the folks who worked in senior care and saw kind of that struggle. You know, here I am, I work in senior care. I know we shouldn't have families in the building, but I was also a family member whose, you know, own mother was, you know, angry at me because I wasn't letting her in to see my dad, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I, I was seeing both sides of that and to, um, be able to try and help families, educate families, communicate with our families about what we were doing. So they would feel some level of comfort that, um, that, you know, their family member wasn't being forgotten in their apartment, that we were actually trying to engage them. You know, that was, to me, some of the some of the most challenging, but some of the most rewarding work as well. You just listened to part one of our conversation with Shari Bear of Jewish Home Life in Atlanta, Georgia. We hope you'll check out part two. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of The Leadership Drives.